0: Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 111. On today's episode, we're talking about anti-Judaism and the Gospel of John with Professor Adele Reinhardt. Professor Adele Reinhardts is professor in the Department of Classics and Religious Studies at the University of Ottawa. She's also the general editor of the Journal of Biblical Literature and the president of the Society of Biblical Literature. She's the author of a number of important studies on the representation of Jesus in film, as well as the Gospel of John, including her most recent work on the Gospel of John, Cast Out of the Covenant, Jews and Anti-Judaism in the Gospel of John, published by Fortress Lexington. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Grace Emmett, Brandon Hurlberg, Dr. Chris Porter, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So carrying on in our discussion on anti-Judaism, uh, it was lovely to have Professor Adele Reinhardt on for this conversation uh, about the Gospel of John and, and, and more broadly about kind of the Guild more, more generally. Really enjoyed this conversation. What were some of the takeaways that you all had from our conversation with Professor Reinhart's?
1: Yeah, I just appreciated all of her wisdom. Like she's been in the Guild for so long. I think it was last year she was just SBL president. She has so many good insights just in general. But I think for, you know, I think many of our listeners are Christian who do care about reading the New Testament as Christian scripture, but also not trying to be a jerk about it to uh, to other people, uh, especially uh, Jews. So I, I really appreciated Professor Reinhardt's perspective as someone who's Jewish and yeah, not shying away from just kind of the general awkwardness of you know talking to Christians about their own sacred texts., uh, but I think her perspective can be illuminating uh, because she's actually free from some of these uh, constraints that we might feel as Christians,
2: yeah, very grateful for Professor Reinhardt sharing her experience in that respect. and, how that's impacted her scholarship and also her sort of experience of being in the Guild of Biblical Studies and thinking a lot about the nature of SBL and different dynamics there. And I think it's been really helpful just to reflect on sort of another form of dominant interpretation that exists within the guild we've talked about that in different ways in this podcast so far and obviously this series we're focusing on anti-semitism so it's been really good just to highlight that and the kind of default nature of christianness in the guild and how that impacts reading biblical texts and how that can other people who don't share that perspective um so grateful for her sharing her own experience and sort of broader reflections as a result of that
3: yeah, I really appreciate the way that Adele brings together the, her scholarship and her scholarship as being someone who is traditionally treated as outside the guild. So her history uh, is coming from a Jewish background and reading as a Jewish person, the fourth gospel, which is traditionally so seen as so anti-Semitic, but being able to do that without removing the scholarship from the, its real world implications. Uh, So often the fourth gospel is sanitized by uh, saying, well, this is, it's all Judeans or it's all about some other groups which uh, have no relationship to the 21st century. And so being able to bridge that gap, uh, which is something that she does across her scholarship. I mean, her work in Bible and film also picks up on that, but she really dives into it deeply here, uh, thinking about the fourth gospel and its impact uh, in our society.
4: I I think what I like about uh, Professor Reinhardt's approach that she really just feels comfortable with taking head-on the anti-semitism of fourth gospel or whatever you want to identify how he uh how the author utilizes the conception of of jews she really kind of shines a light on the effect of that language uh both ancient and modern um and how it was received and uh, i like i like the way that she um addresses the uncomfortable nature um, of that language in the text. Uh, and I think it will give us a lot to uh, wrestle with and reckon with.
0: And here's our conversation with Professor Adele Reinharts. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Professor Reinharts. We're really excited to have you on.
5: It's my pleasure.
0: So we're curious to know a little bit about how you got into studying the gospel of John in in particular. What what led you towards the gospel of John?
5: Well, I mean, the bigger question is what led me towards studying New Testament altogether. That's usually the question that I'm asked. What's a nice Jewish girl like you doing in a field like that? And I actually came to it through Jewish studies. Um, I have a BA and an MA in Jewish studies. I got uh, intrigued by the idea of specializing in New Testament uh, because at the time I didn't know any Jews that were studying New Testament or that were, let's say, eventually professors of New Testament. I came to meet a whole bunch later, but at the time that I was a graduate student, I didn't know any. And it seemed, however, that a strong background in Jewish studies, especially in early Judaism, would be helpful in understanding the New Testament. And um, I also was uh, um, attracted by the idea of being a Jewish professor of New Testament that had an opportunity to teach in classrooms where most of my students would undoubtedly be Christian and perhaps had never met a Jew before or never met somebody Jewish that knew something about Christianity. And so I went into the field of New Testament uh, for those uh, reasons. For the Gospel of John, What intrigued me about the Gospel of John was its literary qualities. Um, I did my graduate work uh, starting in the mid 70s and continuing on until uh, the early 80s at a time when literary approaches, literary theory, literary criticism, these were methods that were just um, uh, becoming, um, were just entering into the field of biblical studies. And I was very much attracted to those approaches. And it seemed to me that the Gospel of John was a highly literary work. It had all kinds of patterns and repetitions and interesting literary features. And so it would be uh, amenable to that kind of approach. However, my doctoral supervisor at the time wasn't keen on the literary approaches. He had since, since then he changed his mind. Um, And so I did a kind of a basic exegetical study of the last few verses of chapter 20 of the Gospel of John. But then after I uh, graduated, of course, once one graduates, uh, you know, we can follow our own interests and, And so I continued on in terms of literary study of the Gospel of John. So in those, when I first began, so I did my doctorate on the Gospel of John and then kept on working on various aspects of the Gospel and on uh, sort of critique of scholarship on the Gospel. But in the early, I don't know, I would say the first uh, 15 or 20 years or so of my work on John, I didn't touch the Jewish question at all. And I think this was in part uh, because I'd gone to graduate school in the height of the objectivity um, of a time when objectivity was highly valued. And I probably also felt somewhat uh, defensive because um, I encountered people who thought that really uh, Christians who thought that somebody who wasn't Christian wouldn't really be able to get this text and from Jews who thought that it wasn't appropriate for Jews to study the new testament so i felt a bit defensive about it and i stayed away really from topics having to do with the jews and as i got older as the field changed as we became less wedded to you know objectivity as i got tenure <laughs> things like that i um began looking much more closely at the issues um, pertaining to John's representation of Jews. And i kind of stayed with that in my work on John for the last 20 years, I would say.
3: Thanks, Adele. And I'm really interested in in your reflections there where, where you stayed away from the gospel of John. Uh, sorry, you stayed away from the Jewish question of the gospel of John um, for so long. And yet the, the fourth gospel has such a um, a strident engagement with the Eudaioi. And and what? How do we even construe who the Eudaioi are within the Fourth Gospel? Be interested if you could take us through like an overview, a sketch of of where you think that has gone, because you've you've seen a lot of different interpretations, and you've written about a lot of the different interpretations over time. What's your current placing of the gospel of the Gospel's intention with the Eudaioi?
5: OK, so that's what I laid out in my uh, most recent book, uh, which came out about three years ago, uh, Cast Out of the Covenant, Jews and Anti-Judaism in the Gospel of John. And I think that that really, um, that's the fullest development of my current understanding of Jews in the Gospel of John, um, which is to, uh, in, in that book, I looked at the Gospel of John as a rhetorical document. This is really an outgrowth of a literary approach. You know, what is, the, what is the gospel trying to achieve? What does it want its readers or its listeners, the, you know, its audiences to understand about the Jews? And so I argued there that the Jews have a very important role in the gospel's rhetorical program as the kind of antithesis to what is required of a believer. And so the the Jews get set up as the negative uh, pull of everything that the author of the Gospel of John, whoever that was, um, wanted its readers to do. And that's the role that I think um, the Jews play. And so, you know, uh, very often, This question of, you know, Jews in the Gospel of John is tackled in terms of who were those Jews? You know, can we identify them with a historical group? Well, that's very difficult because, um, as people point out, Jesus and his disciples and a lot of the people who follow him, according to the narrative of the Gospel, were Jewish. So, of course, they can't mean all Jews Um, And then other people point out, or maybe those same people, that the real bad guys in the gospel are the Jewish authorities, Caiaphas, the high priest, and the others who um, contrived this plot to have Jesus delivered to Pontius Pilate. Some people have suggested that it's a subgroup of Jews uh, who had come back from Babylonian exile Um, and there are many theories as to who these Jews are, and my view is that they're not really, that that's off base, that whole idea of searching for a historical referent for a specific group of Jews that the author of the Gospel of John might have had in mind when he used the term is not really what it's all about, that we really have to look at uh, the role that they play in the Gospels whole uh, theological scheme and the the rhetorical program that he lays out. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't know any real Jews. I mean, we don't really know, right? We don't know how to place him, you know, the author, whoever that might have been with respect to a Jewish community or his own identity. We don't really know anything about that. We can assume that he might have known actual Jews, but we don't know anything about him. So we don't know where he lived. We don't know what his social circle might have been. We don't know anything uh, like that at all. But I think that what happens is he uses the generalizing term, which in Greek simply means the Jews. And later when people read this book or listened to this book, they applied that term to all the Jews that they knew or to all the Jews that they knew about. So whether he had a certain group in mind or not, in a sense, doesn't matter either for the rhetorical purpose or for the eventual effect that the gospel had in terms of the development of Christian anti-Judaism, because that, that generalizing term would have been read in a generalizing way, no matter what the author would or would not have had in mind. So I think those are the two reasons that I think that that approach is off base and that it's much more productive to take a look at how the Jews figure in that rhetorical program. Correct me
4: if I'm uh, misquoting you here, um, but I think uh, I remember you saying, uh, and I forget I forget where this is, you can fill me in. <laughs> um, you said, I think it was the first time you read the Gospel of John, it felt every reference to Jews felt like a slap in the face. Yeah. I wonder if it's maybe helpful or would be interesting to reflect on the kind of dissonance between New Testament scholars trying to kind of salvage John from anti-Semitism and saying, "Oh well, look, he says that salvation is from the Jews, or he was a Jew, so we can't be anti-Semitic." Ha ha! Yeah. Um, on the you know kind of like winning John the non-anti-Semitic card uh, on the basis of the of, of kind of like kind of ad hoc evidence, and and how that the maybe kind of cognitive distance between that kind of exercise and like what does it feel like when a Jew reads this text
5: yeah well I can counter that all the time and in the in the various places where there were uh, panels about this book where I was really the most open that I've been or the most detailed that I've been about how how I you know how I feel that the anti-Judaism John's anti-Judaism pervades the whole gospel So, of course, there are a lot of people who don't like that. Um, But I try to respond to what you refer to, to the types of approaches that you refer to, um, not out of my own experience of reading the gospel as a Jew. You know, that experience of reading, you know, when you read a text over and over and over again, it makes it, you, it is easier to distance yourself from the emotional impact. You feel that full emotional impact the first time. But if you continue to work on a text, you can't keep experiencing that way, it, it that way. It becomes too familiar. And um, you know, this is true also, for example, of those of us that read all the gospels over and over and over again, right? The whole tragedy around the passion and the crucifixion. The emotional impact of that um, lessens the more times that you read that story. You just become used to it. You know that it's coming and you find, I guess, ways of not really confronting the brutality of it and the the reality of it, which is uh, a good film can bring that back to you. But when you're just reading the same text over and over again. And then the other reason that I don't approach it for my own emotional response is that it's very easy for me to be dismissed on that basis. And I've had, there are people, and and, and so I don't do it. You know, I did it in print that time, just to point out that whatever you might think about this text, if you're a Christian of a certain type, the fact is, it's repeated 70 times, mostly in hostile contexts. And somebody who's Jewish, who identifies with the Eudioid is going to experience those in a different way um, than um, a certain type of Christian, I, I, I would say. And so, you know, I've had people, you know, write footnotes like, uh, you know, Adele Reinhardt's being Jewish, <laughs> of course, responds in a certain way to John eight forty four, 44, where it says that Jews are children of the devil, and that just becomes a way of I think the person who who said that um, wanted to acknowledge my Jewishness, but the effect is to dismiss my discomfort with it, right? Well, nobody else would feel uncomfortable with Jews being called children live the Devil. but Adele Reinhardt's being Jewish, you know, she might feel uncomfortable. It makes me want to go back and check my references to make sure that I wasn't the one who did that. <laughs> no, you were not one of those people. <laughs> Not that I've come across anyway. Maybe uh, maybe you'll find, maybe it's in something that I haven't read yet. But when I went, but I do respond to those kinds of comments very directly. And I started just, you know, calling people out for being apologetic, for engaging in an apologetic type of reading of the Gospel of John that is in fact intended to salvage the gospel. And so people will say exactly this happened to me just at the SBL conference where somebody said this. In a session, a senior scholar said this to me in a session. But what about John 4.22, where Jesus says, uh, salvation is from the Jews. And I've written, I've written about this at, at length, why that doesn't actually help. But the fact is, you know, if you've got 70 verses that are negative and one verse that says salvation is from the Jews, no matter what that verse means, it cannot counterbalance everything else. You cannot say, okay, that cancels everything else. It cancels out Jews' children of the devil, Jews plotting to kill Jesus, Jews uh, being uh, cast into the outer darkness or whatever else, you know, one might um, one might say. So that I think it has to be pointed out that there are apologetic motivations for saying some of these things. Um, and the other thing that people often say, uh, which really surprises me, is, well, the gospel can't be anti-Jewish because it offers salvation through Christ to Jews. So therefore, it can't be anti-Jewish. And then it takes me to explain, then I have to explain that actually, a statement like that is implicitly anti-Jewish, even though it's not meant that way, because it implies that you can't actually be a fully-fledged person in covenant in a covenantal community uh, unless you believe in Christ. But I I, I think... That, I mean, my approach has been to just point these things out and to name them for what I think they are, and also to be very glad when there are non-Jewish interpreters of John who make those same points, who understand. I mean, there are many Johannine scholars who are not, you know, who are Christian, who um, truly understand uh, that these are apologetic, supersessionist, implicitly anti-Jewish sorts of comments. It makes me think
4: of like, um, you know, a, lo- a lot of, kind of modern dispensationalist Christians think that, you know, the creation of the state of Israel in 1948, etc., is like a key part in, has a key part in the kind of salvation of the world. Uh, but still, in the end, all the Jews are going to burn anyways, uh, but it can't be anti-Semitic because... Israel has a part to play in the story. People are kind of like, oh, but salvation is from the Jews, so it can't be anti-Semitic. It's like, well, yeah, but yeah, 144,000, that's got to be enough, right? I mean, that's enough. you you can say more about this, but because, yeah, this is. Well, that's
5: Revelation, right? The 144,000, that's from the book of Revelation, probably actually written by somebody named John, for all I know, unlike the gospel that probably wasn't written by somebody named John or, you know, we have no way. No way to know. Yeah, the variation of that on the State of Israel piece is that when all Jews um, move to Israel, then they'll believe in Christ and Christ will come again and they will be saved. So um, and this is based in part on a um, reading or maybe misreading of Romans 9 to 11. Um you know, so and you know, in when when people are making these sorts of statements, they 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 aren't always careful to say, well, this is John and this is Revelation and this is Romans and this is Galatians. You know, they'll shmush everything together as the New Testament. You know, reflecting this view that all of the views expressed in all of these different books are harmonious with one another, whereas as a scholar, we don't see it that way I certainly don't see it that way that we tend to see them as representing particular perspectives Um, we may not know enough about where the authors of those are coming from but we need to acknowledge that these represent different perspectives probably different locations different time periods within the first century and a half
2: yeah I wanted to ask you I suppose that the sort of really poignant reflection on in terms of thinking about your own um positionality your experience how you interact with text and also that tension about how much of that to bring into your work you talked about you know sometimes doing that in print and sometimes holding back and how that can work against you in sort of either way and i'm wondering if there's ways that that distinctly happens for you as a jewish woman um and uh whether within your readings um, of John or your other work, but also actually as SDL president, sort of interested in your experience there um, and perhaps some things that reflects back about uh, the Guild generally, um, if you're happy to reflect on that.
5: Okay, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure how to answer that with respect to my scholarship. Um, you know, with respect to my work on John, I've done some work on feminist types. of st- you know, readings of, of the gospel of John. But when it comes to John, mostly it hits me more directly as a Jew than as a, as a woman. I, you know, John is often read as being more favorable to women, having a larger role for women, especially the story of Mary, Martha, Mary and Martha in John 11 and the Samaritan woman, you know, these are, these are substantial characters. Uh, and so there are um, interpreters who who want to view John as I hesitate the word to use the word feminist. It's so anachronistic, breathtakingly anachronistic, but at least as allowing for a more substantial, and positive role for women. Also, the role of Mary Magdalene in Chapter Twenty, being told to, by by the risen Jesus to go and tell the disciples, and 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 so on. But for me, that approach is not, has really been overshadowed by the whole Jewish question. So when it comes to John, I've mostly looked at it that way. However, when we're talking about participation in the guild, we're not just talking about how we publish or how we teach. We're also talking about what happens at meetings. And here, I have to say that over, I've been going to SBL meetings. I've only missed one year. I mean, this year I wasn't there in person. I was there virtually, but. Still there, I've only missed one meeting in the last forty years or so, and I've noticed a change, a bit of a change. Um, in the in my in the early years of my attendance in the eighties and nineties, I would often be the only woman in the room, certainly the only Jewish woman in the room, but also the only woman in the room. That has changed somewhat, but there's still a sense in which, especially Johannine scholarship, I don't know what it is about Johannine scholarship. But it seems to be populated almost exclusively, I'm exaggerating a bit, by white Christian men. <laughs> and one still sees that. You still see that in uh, tables of contents. You see that in, in meetings. You find very few uh, people. With, well, you find some women, not very many compared to men, but there are more than there, than there were. Uh, But very little diversity otherwise, and I think that that is still the case. And I I think that there are reasons why Johannine studies appeals very much to a conservative Christian crowd and to the men within, within that crowd. So, you know, one still experiences this. And again, you know, as one gets older and, you know, sort of proceeds through one's career, uh, one can be bolder, or at least I have found this to be the case in my own experience, as I've gotten older, as I've jumped through all the hoops of, you know, <laughs> the academic career and all everything involved with that here in, uh, in a North American context and um, well past the age of any scrutiny at my university, you know. Um, I've just become much more at ease with saying exactly what I think and showing up in the rooms where I want to show up. But that's not that wasn't the case when I was younger. And, and this might still be an impediment, you know, when you speak to scholars of color, for example, you know, I think that this is a common experience of kind of wondering uh, that moment before you step into a room where you know that you will be uh, one of uh, you know perhaps the only or one of the very few um, audience you know, members who uh, share a similar set of identities and experiences. On the one hand, things have changed through the years. On the other hand, you know, um, maybe what hasn't changed so so much as the situation is my own circumstances that make it easier to to do certain things. But I think now we're in an era where certainly Jewish scholars in the New Testament are much, uh, there are many more of us than there used to be. And that at least, you know, in scholarly circles, there isn't no longer at least an overt assumption that if you're Jewish, you shouldn't be or you can't be doing these sorts of things. I think there are probably still people who feel like you can't really understand everything. And I would agree I can't understand everything. You know, I can't, there's certain, you know, aspects of the experience of reading the New Testament, for example, that I don't have access to because I don't read it as a believing person. I don't read it as someone for whom this is a sacred text. I don't have to cope with this question that my colleagues have to cope with, whether they whether they address it directly or not, which is what do you do with a text like that? that expresses views that you might yourself feel uncomfortable with, and yet it's your sacred text. You know, as a Jew, you have to deal with this with respect to the Hebrew Bible, for example, and other kind of revered texts in the tradition, but uh, you don't have to do that with respect to the New Testament because it's not your sacred uh, text. So in that sense, you know, that's a challenge that I don't have to deal with. I can just be honest and say, you know, this is ethically problematic.
3: Thanks for those reflections. Um, I find it really uh, interesting your, your reflections on, on the state of Johannine scholarship now, given my entry in more recent years. I mean, I've been coming to SBL for f- only six years now, um, but the Johannine literature session has been far more diverse than many of the Paul sessions that, you, that, oh, that I was could at. Be.
5: <laughs> Maybe that's great. <laughs> right. You know, I don't go that often to the Johannine literature sessions anymore so it could be that I'm just not in the room anymore to notice so I'm actually very glad that you say that you know perhaps that does show a change in a broadening anyway of the um, scholarship on the gospel of John at least as represented at the SBO no I'm glad to hear that yeah
3: I, I think it does and it, I think it but I, I think as well it highlights a lot of um what uh, Willie James Jennings refers to you know in within biblical scholarship and theology as as the whiteness of the discipline
5: uh, quite often
3: interesting yeah, your reflection on in the, in terms of the the Yehanan scholarship being predominantly white and male but then the construal of Judaism being the other uh and if you've seen that process actually affecting pe- the way that people read the gospel of john and read the Eudaioi and therefore, uh, quite commonly, modern Judaism from not just a, a, a lens within the gospel, but from a, a white lens, trying to defend a, a sense of other, othering, as in Christianity has come out of Judaism. So therefore, it needs to other something, something, and in the Gospel of John, that seems to be the eudaioi there. But how much of that is intrinsically tied up with the whiteness aspect of it, not just mm-hmm. the, the Christian aspect?
5: Well, I see the whiteness and the Christian aspect of it, and the male aspect all tied in together. That there, that that this this approach, this kind of systemic stance that we call white supremacy. I see white supremacy as just a short form for something that has other facets to it. So it's white, Christian, male heterosexual, able-bodied, and that's all of a piece in the sense that those descriptors define um, someone who has historically in Western history since, I don't know, 17th, 18th century, been at the top of a totem pole, the top of a hierarchy. And people who deviate from that norm in any way are somehow lesser than. So, you know, what Willie Jennings and and many other um, African-American thinkers and scholars, you know, public scholars and nerdy (laughs) New Testament scholars alike, uh, you know, point to is that certainly in the United States, um, the element of that complex, uh, that stands out the most is is the racial co- uh, aspect of it. And I think that in terms of American history and society, that, that that's true. But those other elements are there as well. It, it, so, you know, of course, academia has broadened out to include women. Um, the SBL certainly, and I think sincerely, you know, is trying to broaden out to include all, all types of uh, diversity. And there's been a lot of very healthy and important and, and necessary critique of uh, the whitewashing that goes on in graduate schools. I mean, many scholars have commented on that. I read it most recently, actually, Angela Parker's amazing book, You know, if God Still Breathes, why can't I? Um, you know, that experience of being an African-American graduate student in a divinity school and studying New Testament, and you're basically enculturated into. A very particular type of methodology, where your own identity as an African American is subsumed, <laughs> you know, and overridden by um, or denied by, you know, the the theoretical methods and the scholars that whose work you have to learn uh, learn about and and so on and so forth. So I've been thinking a lot about the role of Jews in all of this, and r- Jews really play. An ambivalent role. Uh, And I find that many New Testament scholars who fit that dominant mold, you know, white, Christian, male, et cetera, et cetera, some of them are ambivalent about Jews. You know, on the one hand, Judaism is great because it's there at the foundation of Christianity. Of course, Christianity is better. You know, Christianity has completed the work begun by Judaism. You know, scholars actually say these things. So, uh, Christianity is the fulfillment of what was promised by the uh, prophets in the Hebrew Bible, and and so on and so forth. But yeah, but but Judaism is great, and so part of what happens is an appropriation of Judaism. Oh, because we're actually, you know, we've taken all these great elements. So let's have Christian seder's, let's do all sorts of things that show how close we are to our Jewish brothers and sisters, and so on. That. That's also a mode that's quite, (laughs) makes me quite uncomfortable. And I think that other Jewish scholars, uh, yeah, philo-Semitism, but with a twist. There's a little bit, you know, you can tell that people are uneasy. You can always tell if somebody is comfortable with you being Jewish or they're just being overly nice because they know they should be good to you because you're Jewish. And um, it's, it's, yeah, anti-Semitism masquerading as philo-Semitism. So anti-Semitism might be a bit too strong, but it's a kind of discomfort, and so that's one mechanism. Another mechanism is to talk about the Judeo-Christian tradition, and this homogenizes it. It, it brings Jews into this dominant Christian perspective by basically saying we're all kind of like the same. And this used to be uh, certainly when, you know when I was growing up in the fifties and sixties, this was a very a prominent way of speaking, and it was adopted by Jews also because it made us feel, made Jews feel like, oh, we're finally accepted here. Oh, we're finally part of this mainstream thing. And um, but you know, that's really come under serious critique ever since the the late '60s, and 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 more intensely now, because what that usually means is that, oh, you know, the Christian thing is dominant, and we'll let you, you know, we'll 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 acknowledge that Jews also. You know, have so certain um, similar ideas. And what that does is it whitens Jews. And then there are some for whom Jews really are other, who kind of adopt the polarities that the Gospel of John has laid out, and who at least see Jews as in need of completion by faith in Christ, if not, if they might not actually say, "Well, they're going to go to hell. But people still say that. I'll just have a little anecdote here that we were once, um, as a family, we rented a summer cottage uh, for a week or so. And one of my kids at the time was about eight or nine years old. And she made friends with the eight or nine year old in the cottage next door. And one day this this little girl next door came over to my little girl and said, you know, uh, I don't really know if I should play with you. Because my parents say that you're going to go to hell. (laughs) So I think my kid was not. She was more puzzled by this. because We hadn't never really talked about hell anyway. Who was going to go there and what that ever was. But she knew that it wasn't actually a great thing. So like, what does this actually mean? So she was not tremendously um, traumatized by this. But I just thought, oh, really? There are people saying this to their children. One more thing, though, if I may, you know, that... Jews and whiteness is a moving category. And in the same way that uh, it, it and, and, and I think it's these groups that have experienced a transition from not being white to being white, those experiences show, up, show us truly that these, the category of whiteness is not an objective category. It's a constructed category having to do with who is deemed acceptable and part of the mainstream and who isn't. And so this was experienced by Italian immigrants to North America, by Irish immigrants to North America, and by Jewish immigrants to North America and and maybe other groups as well. And when I was growing up in the 50s, when we were immigrants, we weren't white. We weren't considered white and we didn't consider ourselves white. But somehow by the time I got to high school, in the late 60s, we were white. And I remember this moment of kind of, of having that said to me and it was this new sort of idea because it, you still felt like an outsider. There's no question that you still felt like an outsider but somehow this was supposed to be a good thing. So anyway, that, that's just a very long-winded answer to this uh, to this question. But you see that these are categories that the category of white supremacy or the category of whiteness is a complex category. And I would say the important thing really is to look at how it is wielded. What power does it exert? What positions is it used to support? And within the field of biblical studies, we have a long way to go, not just in terms of who gets to sit in the room, but in terms of what sorts of approaches um, we consider worthy of publication in our
0: Uh, on that point about appropriation and philosemitism and all of that i just have to say that today uh, a woman that i went to college with posted on facebook this like big chunky paragraph about why she celebrates hanukkah with her family and it started with fun fact jesus was a jew and i was so tempted to respond with fun fact you're not
5: oh you should have done it <laughs> Oh snap! Oh my! Well, you can still oh do my. that, right? I'm sure you can. Say, oh, <laughs> I think you should go and do that. Oh! That is well, amazing. Oh uh, well, yeah, I mean, the I, Gospel of John refers to Jesus wandering around the temple at the Feast of Dedication, which is Hanukkah, Chapter Ten of the Gospel of John. Right,
3: yeah. I was really interested in your um in your reflections. And this is just an anecdote um about being not being considered white when you. First school, and then by the time we hit high school, being considered white um, as an Asian for, throughout the early two thousands, uh, right up until you know twenty, um, a couple, maybe, uh, probably actually last year, I was considered white here in Australia um, as as a backlash against the um, anti Asian sentiment in um, from the nineties. As soon as COVID hits, That's uh, where Asians are not white anymore. That's yeah. it. You're right. out. <laughs>
5: No, that's right. Why? Because of Wuhan, China.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, I I know. And and so again, you see that it's not an objective descriptor at all. It just has yeah, to do no. with who you want to exclude.
4: Yeah. The so. the Judeo-Christian stuff seems to explode in use after 9/11, which I don't think is a coincidence, right? It's no. Oh yeah, uh you know, you know, I mean cuz like in mid 19th century Germany, you know, the the whole question of Christian origins is basically a question of how could a western society i.e. Christianity emerge from an oriental society that's right it's completely and the whole the whole discourse of Christian origins I still don't think we've reconciled with like no other philological or historical discipline talks about origins the way that the way that new testament yeah. scholars talk about origins because we don't you know what the, the, the issue is that we, we, the birth of the discipline is to figure out how can we possibly have a forward facing society forward-facing culture emerge from a backward-facing culture. Oh, that's right. um, And that assumes that uh, Jewish studies is, is a, or sorry, that um, Judaism is a, you know, oriental, quote-unquote, oriental religion. Okay. Then of course, when you want to demonize Islam, uh, you let kind of Jews be in the Western uh, camp uh, so you can talk about all oh, the Judeo-Christian tradition, which is kind of code for everything not Muslim and backwards and savage. Uh, and I think this is actually interestingly, like, reflected in UK um, universities. So, for example, uh, in Oxford and Cambridge, you have uh, all Christian studies being done out of the theology department, um, all um, uh, Islamic studies being done out of uh, Oriental uh, faculty or the uh, Cambridge, is fames, the Faculty of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies. But then Jewish studies is split between them. So you have some J- Jewish studies being in theology and some Jewish studies being in Uh, Or Oriental Studies at Oxford or Faculty of Asian Middle Eastern Studies at at, at Cambridge Um, and I I just think this is like reflective of our discipline that like Jews are kind of in but kind of not you know they can kind of participate in New Testament studies but like they're also kind of still in Oriental society so we'll kind of put them in both uh, you know all Islam though is like definitely Oriental Studies and all New Testament Studies has to be done out of theology which is just like recapitulates these Orientalist tropes that, yeah uh, these are random thoughts, but yeah, so I think of Judeo-Christian tradition. I think, yeah, they're just including Jews to exclude Muslims.
5: Well, that, that's right. I mean, labeling, labeling is a political act. And so it gets used to make political points. That's why you see these shifting things. And then exactly what you described really, I think illustrates the point that I made earlier about the, peop- the ambivalent attitude towards Jews and the Jews' ambiguous place in, in, in all of this In all of this discourse, depending on what effect you want to achieve, where you want to get to, or who else you want to exclude.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for these uh, reflections. Um, I think for, I mean, we have a pretty you know wide ranging audience and listeners, but I think many of the more academic uh, side of our listeners they'll be they'll be tracking a lot with you, and I think for the more kind of Christians, the more uh, people who. Do pastoral ministry chaplaincy all that kind of stuff they will probably you know our listeners like will probably want to track with you but feel very confi- conflicted about you know that this you know john uh the new testament is still a sacred text and i wondered if for the, for the person who isn't completely rejecting what you're saying who wants to hear you out who wants to kind of follow and become more open-minded and be you know just general better human uh and definitely a better christian um you know what 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 are some ways that you know christians can retain the gospel of john or other elements uh, of the new testament as christian scripture read it as christian scripture but you know do so in a way that is respectful do so in a way that is that is loving uh and in a way that is that doesn't you know fulfill these you know the anti-semitism that we find in the history of interpretation? How, how, what, what might, you know, Christians today learn from you and your scholarship, but also how how might they read and preach the Gospel of John for today?
5: All right, so that's a really good question. I'm glad you asked that. So I have a couple of suggestions for that. And first of all, I think that um, that a historical approach can be hugely helpful to us. Uh, When it comes to many of these issues, uh, if we look at um, what John has to say about the Jews or another important issue, how what what the Bible, Hebrew Bible and New Testament say or don't say about slavery, what they might say about homosexuality, you know, LGBTQ homosexuality, um, you know, that historical approach can be very helpful if we're willing truly to understand that these documents are products of their own time and place. And whatever, you know, historical criticism gets criticized for all kinds of, you know, good reasons, but a historical approach, understanding really that these texts come from a certain context where there were certain social norms and cer- certain political relationships, let's say. Uh, that deeply shaped how these texts were written. And if we can do that, that's one important step. And what that also means is that we don't have to um, dehistoricize the text and assume that in every single element of it, it is directly applicable to today. It means that we don't have to uphold as equally authoritative, or if we want to use the word divine, um, every single element of it. So we can say, yes, there are various reasons why the narrator or the implied author of the Gospel of John might have said to Jews uh, within a narrative context that you have the devil as your father. That doesn't mean that the Jews do have the devil as their father. And it doesn't mean that you as a believing Christian in the 21st century have to believe that about Jews. Okay, this is where I think the rhetorical approach can also help. What is John, the gospel, trying to achieve by saying this? I don't think, and this is, I I always say this, I don't think that John's Jesus, I don't think Jesus said those words. I cannot imagine that Jesus as a historical figure referred to Jews as children of the devil. It's not conceivable that he did so. So whoever wrote the Gospel of John scripted those words for Jesus. And my job as an interpreter, and I think our job as readers, is to think about why he would have done that. So we don't have to think, we don't have to come to the conclusion that he did that because it's factually true. That's not the conclusion we have to come to. The conclusion we can come to, and I think should come to, is, you know, it served a purpose for him. It served a rhetorical purpose. So that's one element. You know, if we look at it in his historical context, maybe two elements, right? We look at the historical context of a, a group that's trying to figure out what it is, that has its uh, origins in a Jewish context, but is kind of trying to figure out where it stands at this particular point towards the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. and as And then if we look at the gospel, not as a historical document that says factual things about what happened in the time of Jesus. It may do that or it may not. Uh, Some of the things may be factual, some of the things may not. But if we look at it as a rhetorical document, trying to persuade its audience of something, then we can get somewhere and understand where a statement like, You know, you have the devil as your father, or you are from your father, the devil, actually more accurately, Uh, how that fits into John's rhetorical context. And then I would say the third element would be to have, to to look at the implied authors. We can't get any further than that. We don't know who the authors really were. As people who were actually trying to figure out what all of this meant and where all of this should go. And I think we see this in the Gospel of John. We see it even more clearly in Paul. I mean, what's fun about studying Paul is that he's so there as a person, right? He sputters with anger. You know, in Galatians, he doesn't finish all of his sentences. He's saying, oh, you know, does this mean that in Romans he says, you know, has God cast aside the Jews? No, of course not. That couldn't have happened. The Jews had this and that, the patriarchs, the scriptures, the covenants and all these things. You know, we really see Paul trying to figure out where he would stand and where his audiences you know, would stand. And I think we can look at John, whoever John was, the same way. He's just trying to figure this out. He had no intention whatsoever, I don't think of providing fuel for two millennia of Jew hatred and of imagery that associates Jews with the devil, which we find all over the place. If you do a, a, a Google search, you'll find it everywhere, all kinds of websites and you know things put up there today for all I know. John didn't have that in mind. He was just trying to figure this out. And I think John already had in mind a kind of, a view uh, or a move of this community from outside a Jewish framework. It doesn't mean that it had already happened, but I think that he could imagine it. And so he uses the Udayoi as a negative pole to underscore that people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah and son of God are not really Udayoi anymore, no matter what their ethnic background would have been. Because you dioid by definition, John's definition, are those who don't share that belief. So I think if we can look at the gospel that way, and that's a more complex way of looking at the gospel than many are comfortable with. But I know, I know many who, who do that, you know, who, who are, uh, you know, consider themselves committed Christians and very involved in, in church communities and so on and so forth, who have those kinds of views of the gospels and the New Testament. That allow them to um, contextualize historically and rhetorically um, these statements about the Jews.
3: I often wonder um, what might happen in two millennia time when uh, textual critics get a hold of our Twitter feeds um, and <laughs> right. and we suddenly have uh, people Christians calling other Christians uh spawn of uh, spawn of satan or right. uh people you know who are going to hell. Uh and if if the same reading strategies are used of uh that are commonly used of John 844 uh and applied to our Twitter feeds uh and then I, I think we we end up in that same situation. Yeah. Um and and I think yeah you're highlighting that socio rhetorical context is so important for Uh, not just for scholarship, and I think scholarship has made a a good headway into that, but for uh, the general Christian audience, uh, for the gospel, and for uh, biblical texts as a whole, and I thank you for that.
5: Yeah, I think that's a good um, kind of um, imaginative exercise, right, because, you know, those of us living now, when we see certain things on our Twitter feeds, let's say, we can contextualize them, we know where they're where they come from. We know that we can discount them I, I, I would hope as as uh, you know discount them as meaningful or worth paying any attention to and so on and so forth, you know um but we don't have that same information about the first century. We don't have that the texture of everyday life. you know, we reconstruct it from archaeological sites, we try to to extrapolate some ideas about it from our texts, but we don't have that feel the way we do for the time that we ourselves are, are living in or that or that we can kind of recreate for more recent eras where we have just a lot more information. So I think that's absolutely right. I think about the pandemic that we're experiencing now, for example, and I think that we could all do, all of us here, could do sophisticated analyses of not just the superficial ways, but the deep ways in which the experience that we've been enduring for the last 20 months or so has affected our lives, has affected society, has affected social media, has affected economic life, has affected you know, people buying Christmas and Hanukkah gifts, you know, all, all of those things. But even in a hundred years from now, Well, maybe we'll know that because we have just so much more information. But conceivably, people won't really have that texture. The way that we don't exactly about uh, what's called the Spanish flu of 100 years ago. So, Or the way that people who are much younger than me that um, got a polio, started getting polio vaccines when you were two months old, you know, most of you, probably all of you can't even imagine, something that that I've been reminiscing about, Um, the joy in our household when at the age of five, I was able to line up in my kindergarten classroom and get a a needle for polio, which was this huge fear in the early 50s when I was born. Huge. You can't even imagine it. And people are talking about this now in the context of five to 11-year-olds here in Canada now this week being eligible for their COVID vaccinations and, you know, saying, you know, in the fifties, when the polio vaccine came out, nobody was vaccine hesitant. Parents couldn't get them, get, you know, I mean, it was offered in all the schools. It was just not a question. It was just not a question. Nobody opted out. Nobody talked about, um, you know, this conspiracy or that conspiracy. <laughs> and um you know, not like not like uh, now, where there's where this is the problem. and I mean, I don't know how all of you feel about it, but I feel pretty strongly about it. You know, the emergence of the omicron uh, variant now, you might think, well, you know, variants can emerge in contexts where not enough of the world is vaccinated because there are too many hosts still for this. That was a real tangent, but I think it just has to do with how you cannot. Um, it's very hard to capture the spirit of an age that you haven't yourself lived through. And so we have to really recognize that that's the position we're in with respect to the first century, no matter how much we know. We, we can't recapture that. And often what we do is this anachronistic move of assuming a continuity of human nature, which I think is a plausible move, And a continuity of human experience. But continuity of human experience, we can't assume that in every instance. In every instance. And so even around issues of Judaism and Christianity, the whole discussion of the parting of the ways, which is what I'm working on now, the whole discourse around the parting of the ways is anachronistic in a sense because we almost all of us import the... Kind of divisions between Judaism and Christianity, the distinctiveness of Judaism, the differentiation between Judaism and Christianity that we take as part of our normal lives today. We read that back. But really, we don't know that it felt like that at all to the people who were actually parts of the, you know, participating in these movements at the time. We have no idea. How did Gentile Christians see themselves anyway?
3: I'm really reminded of the Epistle of Vienna and Lyon, which talks about the the pagan persecution of Christians in Vienna and Lyon. But it explicitly cites John by by saying, um, I can't remember which Christian, this certain Christian, he uh, loved his um, lo- loved loved uh, loved his fellow Christians as friends. Um, by laying down his life for them, right, and then continues on and cites. Uh, so, that, so that's the the engagement of John fifteen, but then continues on to cite uh, John sixteen two, and says, <laughs> right. um, you know, th- there and there will be a time that will come that those who put you to the sword will think they're doing God's work, but absolutely divorces it from the context of the synagogue, which John is engaging in there. And and I've been, I'm writing some stuff on the reception of the fourth gospel. And part of it, I think, is that the, it's not so much that there is a parting of the ways, but that Christians who take the fourth gospel then as a constitutive text Aren't even using it in reference to Judaism at all. Uh, the, it's, it's a presumed background, and there's, the the so, social, socio historical context has
5: moved on, and yeah. so yeah, I think that's right. You see it in that letter, of course. You also see it in the um, in patristic literature, where a lot of Johannine material gets quoted, but in in the context of controversies with those that get labeled um, heretics. Heretical movements, you know, and in the process of constructing, you know, what is orthodoxy, what, you know, if we're orthodoxy, then everybody else has to be um, heterodoxy. And John gets brought in 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 those um, controversies, devoid, using, but, but what's problematic is that the language still gets used. Uh, you know of uh you know Jews appear in these quotations. I don't know if that's true in the letter that that you're referencing, but it's true in the patristic stuff and then um you know, but that's not really the intentionality at all
3: yeah and and that citation of the Jews as the prototypical other um, yeah that's
5: right, and I think that's what happens that they stand in for whatever group you're against, Jews can stand in for that, mm. and that's true in a contemporary context as well
3: yeah, yeah. um there's a a journalist and comedian down here, John Safran, uh, who is a a Jewish journalist and comedian. He's just written a book on uh vaping, on the Philip Morris's uh move into, into e-cigarettes. Uh, oh. okay. and interestingly, so I mean completely separate context and absolutely a religious. Yeah, you know, it's it's a secular book, but so many of the pieces that he posts to, posts to his Instagram are anti-Semitic uh, and explicitly religious um, because he's critiquing smoking. Therefore, there is this counter critique of religion and, and it's Judaism that becomes the other, not anti-smoking or health kicks or whatever. Oh. Um, it's, it's interesting how that dynamic plays out even in our modern society.
5: You're talking about the comments on his book on his Instagram.
3: Yeah, or? yeah. So he, yeah. Po- he he receives comments on on his um, on his book, and right. he he posts so he, a sele- he posts selection those of them to show that they're authentic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, people citing um, Matthew uh, Matthew twenty five uh, that insinuating that like Judas he should go hang himself mm-hmm. um, uh, because he is the and and it's it's this direct link between you've critiqued smoking therefore you just like your your ancestors having killed jesus you should go hang
5: yourself <laughs> wow it's incredible to equate smokers with jesus though isn't it in this you know now <laughs> but anyway yeah i
4: just i mean i was just thinking about um you mentioned the kind of of the gospel is that you know you no matter what we say about the, the Gospels' use of "Yudaioi." The fact is, is that it was used for th- for you know thousands of years uh, as a basis for extreme anti Semitism. And I just I just think of the um, the kind of immediate reception, you know, from 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 John's uh, form of anti Semitism to Justin's, uh, which just you know takes takes John to an absolutely new level and make and creates a Trifode um, uh, as this kind of prototypical other. I guess I'm, I just think about whether, and maybe this is too much of a conversation, I just think, was, was that realization of the gospel of John inevitable? And I, and I have no, like, theological or personal, uh, you know, uh, stock in, in the answer to that question. But I just, I think, you know, we're, we live downstream from a history in which that was the actualization of John's language of mm-hmm. you die." What was that the inevitable result? Uh, I mean, it's impossible to say, I guess.
5: These thought experiments are fun, you know, to do and interesting to think about. Um, I once did that, uh, you know, thinking about what if the temple hadn't been destroyed in 70? You know, how would Judaism look? Would Judaism even have survived? You know, did that event actually catalyze some something that allowed Judaism to persist? Uh, even in the absence of the sacrificial cult, which had been so central. And I think you can, you know, you can engage with the same thought experiment in in this way. Was it inevitable? I think maybe the question is, you know, what if, if you really think about it, you know, if you, if you think yourself back imaginatively and knowing and anachronistically and knowing that you can't really do this, right, what it, what it maybe would have been like to be, I don't know, Philip or Nathaniel. On uh, whatever day this would have happened in the year thirty three or twenty six or you know, and um to have the person that you thought was this maybe you thought was the Son of God, I mean, if you accept the the uh, narrative in the Gospel of John, and he gets killed, well, that's not supposed to happen, right? And you have ref- reflections of that problem in the Gospel of John. Like, how could somebody who's crucified be the messiah you have this reflected actually in all of the gospels and in early christianity in general so that group of disciples could just have said oh well we goofed we were sorry we were wrong <laughs> let's carry on you know, everybody goes back to their fishing villages in the galilee and um you know forgets that this ever happened
3: well, and that seems to be what happens at the end of John 21. Like It seems end, at to the be what happens at
5: the end of so. John 21. And potentially at the end of Mark, if you think about it, it's kind of interesting, right? At the end of the short ending of Mark, where the women have this experience and then they don't tell anything to anybody. This is just so marvelous about Mark as a literary text. Well, then how do we know? They didn't say anything to anybody. So there's there's this gap, which the longer endings you know, try to, try to fill, but it's fascinating as a literary, uh, you know, as a literary text. So would these texts even have come to an existence? I don't, I don't think so. But then at at each point, you know, what if they hadn't been canonized? What if they remained like the Gospel of Nicodemus or the Acts of Pilate or any of these other, you know, Acts of Philip and any of these other texts, you know, the Gospel of Mary, all of these other infancy gospels, all these texts that didn't didn't become canonical, uh, would that same effect have occurred? And I think not. I think that the canonization of these texts is what provided the vehicle for the perpetuation of these anti-Jewish views. But of course, the canonization of these particular texts might also reflect a certain set of views that, were compatible with what ended up being canonical. You know, all kinds of questions around, around that.
0: Well, Professor Reinhardt, thank you so much for your time. This has just been absolutely fabulous. We really appreciate having you okay, on the podcast.
5: Great. It was fun for me too.